Due to the nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, sexual harassment, gun violence, and gore. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Today, Wendy and I will provide the facts while our actors present scenes inspired by our research. In the U.S., Memorial Day is the unofficial kickoff to summer, a promise of sunshine and fun. And there's plenty of sun and fun in California. On Memorial Day 1933, Palo Alto real estate agent Julia Place brought Alfred Ross and his wife to a charming Spanish-style bungalow near prestigious Stanford University. She wanted to showcase it as a summer rental. I told them I'd be dropping by. (laughs) Let me check the back. Mr. Lamson usually gardens around now. Wait right here. After checking the backyard, Julia returned to her clients. He was gardening and burning trash. Uh, He doesn't want to litter, you see. Such a smart Stanford man. Anyway, he's popping in to let his wife know we're here. He should be out in just a second. Oh, my God. My wife's been murdered. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murder of Aline Lampson, a wife, mother, and Stanford graduate who got into the bath on Memorial Day 1933 and never got out. Today we'll meet Aline and David Lampson, a privileged young couple whose marriage was more troubled than their suburban neighbors thought. Next week, we'll follow the three criminal trials. Each divided the Stanford community with a question, did a perfect husband kill his perfect wife? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Stanford University is home to some of the world's best and brightest young minds. It's true today, and it was true back in 1922. 
Back then, David Lamson was a sophomore majoring in history. He was also a creative soul who joined the Glee Club, wrote and acted for the Ramshead Theatrical Society, and became an editor at the Chaparral, a humor magazine. He was a Stanford Golden Boy, and his passion for writing changed his life when he met a freshman in Stanford's student publications offices. She was a brown-eyed brunette freshman named Aline Thorpe. Their meeting probably went something like this. Excuse me, do you work at the Stanford Daily? No, I'm an editor at the Chaparral. The Daily calls us juvenile jokesters. Isn't the Chaparral a comedy paper? Yep, so we're thrilled they said that. (laughs) You new around here? A freshman, fresh from Missouri. I was hoping to write at the Daily, um... Oh, my, uh, it's hot in here. I've got her. Show's over, people. Here, sit. Need a compress? Some ice? My big sister's a doctor, so that makes me one. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Thanks. What's your name? David Lamson, but my friends call me Dave. I'm Aline, and I'm so sorry. (laughs) I have this charming habit of passing out when it gets too hot. And I've also got weak ankles. So you moved to sunny California, where everyone likes to hike in the sun. That's not funny. Well, it was a little. (laughs) Say, were you in the skit the Ram's Head Society put on at orientation? You bet. You enjoy my performance? You did your best with the so-so script. The script I wrote? Oh, I mean, you did your best with so-so direction. I also directed. Oh, God. Really? (laughs) Kidding. I only wrote the skit, so I'm only half to blame. Good. Then I'm only half mortified. (laughs) I should get to class. Oh, wait. Uh, Let me walk you. I'm fine, David. I don't need any more help. But I do. I'd like to take my writing from so-so to bravo. So maybe you could read my next skit? If I can make my toughest critic laugh... Mm -hmm. Sounds like hard work, but it's a deal, Dave. We don't know much about Aline's past, but if David was an example of Stanford's best and brightest, Aline was probably even more so. At the time, women's attendance was capped at just 500 students, as men's education was deemed more important. The limit was designed to keep Stanford's student body over 60% male, so women had to demonstrate exceptional qualities just to get in. Aline was exceptional. She pursued her passion for journalism, becoming the woman's section editor for the Stanford Daily and the Quad Yearbook. She also pledged the Tri-Delta sorority and joined Theta Sigma Phi, a nationwide fraternity for women interested in journalism. Aline and David crossed paths in class, in the student paper offices, and on stage. Or at least David was on stage, performing skits and plays he'd written. Aline wasn't a performer, but she loved seeing and lending a critical eye to theater. It's likely that as a playwright and actor, David valued her insights. So then I say to the priest, 
Father O'Brien, you haven't died and gone to hell. You just woke up on Berkeley's campus. <laughs> then lights out as the crowd roars. What do you think? You're, you're not laughing. I've heard six drafts of this punchline. I, I'm just laughing on the inside. Well, when you're at the show, I need you to laugh on the outside. <laughs> uh, about the show? Oh, we're having a cast party afterwards. Stick around after curtain call. That way, we can walk over there together. I won't be at the show. What? Why not? I'm busy that night. I'm sorry. I meant to tell you once the script was in a good place, which it is now. Dave, it's hysterical. Is it Manuel Lovelace? We have plans. Yes. <laughs> to do what? Build a bridge? I don't know how you stay awake around him. Every engineering major I've met is a snooze. He's not a snooze. Manny's quiet, sure. But at least with him, I can get a word in edgewise. Hey, hey. It's all right, Aline. I'm sorry. I'm sure Manny's a great pal to you, and you can come to other shows. Maybe even write one with me. Forget I said anything. It's, it's not that serious. That's the problem. It is serious. Manuel and I are engaged. What about us? What about us? We're classmates? Friends? Right? Yeah, but... We make a good team. That's all you have to say? I think that says it all. David was heartbroken about Aline's engagement to Manuel Burr Lovelace until the sob story ended in a twist. Manuel suddenly announced his engagement to another woman, and Aline was single again. This time she was heartbroken, but Dave was there to support her and eventually to make his own intentions clear. <laughs> Thanks for listening, Dave. I, I promise I'm better. I, uh, <laughs> I don't even want to burn down Manuel's dorm anymore. Good. <laughs> because Aline... Maybe it's too soon, but I can't pretend what happened to you and Manny is sad. It's the best news I've heard all year. And why is that? Because I like you. You know that. And you like me too. Now we can figure out what that means for us. I don't know. <laughs> I should probably focus on other things besides boys. I don't have much time left. What does that mean? It means that once you graduate... You get to chase your dreams. Once I graduate, I have to find a husband, have children, all of the expected things. Don't you want those things? That's not all I want. I want a master's degree in journalism and a job, something meaningful, something I'm worthy of, or something worthy of me. I want that for you too. I want to be there when you get that degree, then whisk you off to Memorial Church to marry the Miss with the Masters. That is, if I'm worthy of you. Don't leave me hanging. I like you more than I realized. But if we're going to turn this story into a romance, I want to take it slow. Get to know the real Dave. <laughs> you know me. I'm an open book. No. You want people to think you're an open book, but there's chapters missing or a, a second volume that isn't available at the library or... Uh, 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 
we have got to drop this book metaphor. Yeah, it's getting real confusing. My point is, I know what you think about every play we see and every book we read, but I know so little about you. Well, dear, I was born in Cupertino, so I've got California charm. I was student body president at Palo Alto High, so you know I'm a leader. I've worked jobs for years to support my mom and sisters, so you know I'm not a bum who leaves a lady in the lurch. I don't want your biography, Dave. I want your story. The true one. Aline, I don't like talking about the past. Why not? Because... It's in the past. I've worked hard to make up for, to improve myself. The guy you see here is the only guy I want you to see. What do you mean, make up for? What are you making up for? Just forget it. Dave, what happened? You're scaring me. Which I don't want to do, so drop it. Fine. No, I'm sorry. I I can't. If you want a future with me, you have to open up. What, did you cheat on a test or something? Break a poor girl's heart? You need to stop asking me. David, you can tell me. It's not like you killed someone. Dave? David? Did you kill someone? I did. Aline was swiftly falling for David Lamson, but there were a few twists in his story she'd yet to uncover. Coming up, we learn about David's dark past and his bright future with Aline. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. David Lamson looked like Stanford's golden boy, but he wasn't all golden. And as his relationship with Aline deepened, they had to face some harsh truths. Here's how we imagine that went. David, what do you mean you killed someone? Well, I was born in California, but when I was a teenager, we lived up in Canada on a farm. I had a school friend, Dick Sharp. We used to go shooting for crows. One day, this beauty of a crow flew by, and I... I raised my shotgun and took aim. I can't remember if I warned Dick or if I thought he saw me, but, but he stepped in front of me, right as I pulled the trigger, and... I killed my friend. Dave, that's awful, but 
It was a mistake. A terrible accident. The police said so too. But life didn't really go back to normal after that. My mother took me and my sisters back here, my father stayed in Canada, and I tried to forget. That's why I throw myself into work and school and being the best. Because I'm never gonna make a mistake like that again. Thank you for telling me. <sighs> I was afraid you'd pass out or something. I've got weak ankles, not a weak heart. So, you don't hate me? I like you even more, Dave. Because now, I understand you. David and Aline were inseparable for the rest of undergrad and beyond. David graduated in 1925 and got a job at the Stanford University Press as a sales manager. Aline stayed to pursue her master's degree in journalism. She penned deep dive articles about everything from Stanford's endowments to how the Quad Yearbook was compiled and made keen social observations too. Perhaps the most surprising difference in the new quad is that wherever possible, the women of the university are given a boost. The women's government will appear under the general classification government. Women's athletics will appear under athletics. And the women will not be shoved off into a separate section by themselves as in the past. In 1928, 24-year-old Aline's personal and professional lives peaked on the same day. On the morning of June 18th, she received her master's in journalism. Then, that evening, she married David at Stanford's beautiful Memorial Church, right on the campus where they fell in love. In 1929, they got a house on Stanford's faculty row at 622 Salvatierra Street, a Spanish-style bungalow with ivy on the walls and fruit trees in the yard. David and Aline's neighbors and friends were professors and professionals, and the couple was very popular. While the rest of the U.S. suffered through the Great Depression, this circle of privileged achievers led idyllic California lives. Perhaps surprisingly for a young 1930s career man, David dove into domesticity. He gardened and burned trash in the yard on weekends so the waste didn't pile up. David was also a pro in the house. He kept it tidy, and since Aline wasn't much of a cook, he made breakfast for her every morning. Maybe the years caring for his mother and sisters taught him a few tasty recipes. Aline may have had a rougher adjustment to married life. Her delicate health meant that she was sick a lot, but she tried to balance home and work life too. Sadly, her career path was rockier than David's. In 1929, Aline worked at the Stanford University Press. A job alongside her husband was something she likely enjoyed, but another man soured things for her. A janitor harassed her with love letters. He was fired after Aline notified higher-ups, but it doesn't seem like Aline stayed at the press for long after that. She found another gig as an assistant executive secretary for the local YWCA. She was overqualified given her degrees, but at least it was something. 
1931, Aline gave birth to a daughter. The baby was named Aline after her mom, but everyone called her Bibi. Aline's adjustment to motherhood was probably tough given her frailty. Aline had trouble lifting her growing baby onto the toilet or into the bath. Luckily, David and Aline could afford a nanny, Dolores Roberts. David helped around the house, but not as much as he wanted. His job at the Stanford Press wasn't easy and it kept him busy. A lot of university publishers today focus on printing academic material, fiction, poetry, thoughtful stuff, prestigious. They aren't out to make millions. But back then, the Stanford Press operated more like a commercial publishing house. And in the Depression era, it had to make money. As a sales manager, David wasn't basking in a cushy world of literature. He was hustling. Any genre could do, as long as it sold copies. In 1932, David was tasked with promoting a gardening book. He headed to Sacramento, intent on getting the Sacramento Union newspaper to print excerpts from the book in a recurring column. When he met the staffer in ad sales, he realized she was an old Stanford friend. Uh, hello? They sent me here to see a Miss Kelly about ad sales. Dave Lamson? Sarah Miss Gimmons? I can't believe I didn't recognize you. <laughs> well, I'm ten years older, two shades blonder, and uh, minus one husband, though I kept his last name. How the hell are you, Dave? I saw in the alumni newsletter that you and Aline got hitched. Hitched? With a daughter in diapers. And look, our house is tiny. Uh, we're using a little back room as a nursery, so... I need to sell this damn book. Help an old Stanford pal out so we can get his wife and kid a nicer house? Hmm, what's in it for me? Ad revenue. And more flowers than you'll know what to do with. You send your wife flowers, Dave? I do. Good. Maybe stick to that. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, the flowers need to be photographed for the articles. I figured you'd take the lead on the creative vision. I didn't mean... Oh, <laughs> sorry. I, I thought you were... I wasn't. Good for you. Good for Aline, too. <sighs> Let's sell this damn book. David and Aline both knew Sarah in their Stanford days, but David and Sarah were closer. They'd worked together at a newspaper over summer break in 1922, and in the first half of 1933, they became even friendlier. From January to May 1933, David went on at least eight trips to Sacramento and spent a lot of time collaborating with Sarah on the gardening book. They shared meals at restaurants and in her apartment, and David sent Sarah flowers five times. Aline knew about David and Sarah's project. She wrote about it in her diary. And Sarah wasn't the only woman David worked with. Aline sometimes joked with friends about David having to wine and dine female writers for work. Aline may not have felt like her marriage was threatened, but it's possible that Sarah Kelly stirred up some complicated feelings anyway. Sarah was in charge of the gardening column because she had editorial and advertising experience. Impressive, especially for a woman in the 1930s. She had the kind of career Aline wanted. 
Meanwhile, Aline's life was way less glamorous. In fact, sometimes it was miserable. While David was on his trips, Aline cared for their daughter, Bibi, who suffered from multiple sinus infections in early 1933. Things were stressful at home, and we know Aline didn't find her job at the YWCA too thrilling. It doesn't seem like the mood improved when David was around either. In a letter to her boyfriend, the Lamson's nanny, Dolores, wrote, Mr. and Mrs. Lamson have been fighting like two little kids. They make me sick, and I don't know which one I like least. Dear me, I don't want to get married ever. There were a lot of forces at play. David's absences for work, Aline's career frustrations, and the stress of a sick child. Though we don't know exactly how it all came to a head, it may have gone something like this. <sighs> Thanks. I needed a drink after today. Oh, how's things at the Y? Didn't get much done. I was foggy from being up with BB last night. <sighs> Sorry. You know I'd have spent the night in the nursery with her if I'd gotten home early enough. I know. <clears throat> so, I wanted to ask you about something. There's a job opening at the press. Oh? What kind of job? It'd be working for me, so probably a really annoying job, but a good one. So, I was thinking, and look, this might be a big change. Change can be good. Right, right. So... Don't you think Sarah Kelly's a perfect fit for the press? Aline? Uh, What's wrong? <laughs> Nothing. You thought I was going to offer it to you. Honey, I... It's just that Sarah's more qualified... I know she is, David! That's the problem! I didn't know you were interested in advertising and your job at the Y... It's a distraction! I need a career... And you have always known that. Uh, maybe I'm not qualified for the job at the press. Fine, but I've got two degrees and a brain that is pretty quick, if a little rusty. There's got to be somewhere that I can start. Tell me that you haven't forgotten who I am. I could never. L look, I I'm seeing Frank Taylor at the Chronicle in April. If I ask him, he'll help find you a job. Something worthy of you. That would mean a lot. By the spring of 1933, David knew Aline was suffering. He had to make things right. And as April turned to May, things seemed to change for the better. David spoke to his friend, writer Frank Taylor, about things being tense at home. He needed to find Aline a job, preferably something in advertising. It seemed like his efforts meant something to Aline. In mid-May, she wrote fondly in her diary about David's celebration of her for Mother's Day. Mother's Day with silk hose, candy, flowers, and all. The pair made summer plans to rent out their bungalow and spend time in the mountains. The fresh air would be good for their baby's inflamed sinuses. The plan to rent the house out was what brought a realtor, Julia Place, and her clients to Salvatierra Street on Tuesday, May 30th, Memorial Day. Where she'd have a front row seat to the shocking end of the Lampson's marriage. Hmm, 
I told them I'd be dropping by. <laughs> Let me check the back. Mr. Lamson usually gardens around now. Wait right here. Around 10 a.m. on Memorial Day 1933, realtor Julia Place went into the owner's backyard. There, she found David Lamson. Shirtless, doing yard work, and burning a pile of trash. You, Mr. Lamson? Uh, I've got a couple who wants to see your house. That's fine. But let me go inside first, put on a shirt and warn Aline that we've got company. I'll meet you at the front. To Julia, David was perfectly happy and at ease. He seemed that way to Helen Vincent, too, a neighbor who was washing her car near David's yard. The David who burst out of the door and startled Julia a few minutes later was completely different. He wore a shirt now, but it was covered in blood. Oh my God, my wife's been murdered. What? Please, call the police. Get them here right now. David ran back into the house. Julia rushed to help as neighbors ran over, drawn by David's screams. Julia stuck around long enough to call the authorities and David's sister. Another neighbor, Hallie Brown, followed the screams to the Lampson's small bathroom where she saw a horrifying sight. Blood pooled on the floor and splattered across the walls. Almost too much blood, like it couldn't have come from a small woman like Aline. David knelt by the tub, sobbing. Aline hung over the side of the bath, limp in her husband's arms. It was clear she was dead. Aline, wake up. Wake up. Aline. Oh, David, you have to get out of here. Hallie Brown was quick to offer help to her neighbor. Perhaps too quick. Coming up, everyone wants to talk to David Lamson. Now back to the story. On Memorial Day 1933, screams rang down the street in Palo Alto, California. Neighbor Hallie Brown went to see what the fuss was about and found her neighbor, David Lamson, clinging to his wife's dead body. Aline, wake up. Wake up, Aline. David, David, it's Hallie from down the street. You shouldn't be in here. There's so much blood. Aline. Aline. She died, Hallie. Someone killed my wife. I know. You have to let go of her. You're getting more blood on you. You should lie down in the other room. I can't. I... Okay. We're gonna get you settled. I'll make you a lemonade, and then I'll help you clean up. Okay? Yes. We have to clean up. As Hallie Brown tried to guide David out of the bloodied bathroom and toward his daughter's nursery, he fainted. Hallie was a caring neighbor, so after making sure David woke up and helping to get him settled, she decided to help even more by trying to clean up the bloody bathroom. It was an act of caring and carelessness. Now the crime scene wasn't preserved. 
and several neighbors came in and out over the next few minutes, tracking blood everywhere through the house, the hall, the walls, even the doorknobs. That made it much harder for police to be able to figure out what happened. The Palo Alto police arrived around 10.10 a.m. to investigate. They found Aline in the tub, hanging over the edge, face down, with a bloody wound at the base of her skull. The water in the tub was still warm. Aline wasn't suffering from rigor mortis, which meant she'd probably died within the past hour. Some of the blood in the room was arterial. It sprayed from Aline's wound directly. Other blood was a lighter shade, as it had mixed with the bathwater. Despite Hallie's efforts, blood still covered the room, except for a seemingly unused women's sanitary napkin on a stool. This piqued the police's interest. Only one man could answer their many questions, David Lamson. But he was shell-shocked, and that may have led to behavior that seemed suspicious. Deputy Sheriff John Moore allegedly witnessed David talking to his sister, Dr. Margaret Lampson. My God, why did I ever marry her? David, don't say that. Margaret would later say that David said no such thing. All he did was repeat. She never hurt anybody. She never hurt anything. It was a delicate time, but investigators like Deputy Sheriff Howard Buffington had no time to be delicate. Over a series of interrogations, the officer nicknamed Hangman learned David's side of the story. We imagine the conversations went something like this. I'm sorry for your loss, Mr. Lampson. Or can I call you Dave? My friends call me Dave. I'll take that as a yes. Say, Dave, where's your daughter? She's at my mother's for the weekend. Aline's had a rough few months, so I thought she could use the rest. Oh, so it's just going to be the two of you all weekend. <laughs> How romantic. No, we had, we had plans. We saw the Ormsby's Friday, played bridge with the Swains on Sunday, and had dessert at the Wrights last night. You Stanford people and your whirlwind lives. Was it a late night? No. Aline wasn't feeling well. Stomach problems. Ah, <laughs> did you get loaded like the good old college days? All we had was orange juice and lemon pie. I think that set Aline off. Glad she had you to watch over her all night. We didn't sleep together, actually. Sorry about that, Dave. Guess it wasn't a romantic weekend. No. I offered to sleep in the nursery. I do that when Aline's sick. When she needs space. Did she make you sleep alone a lot? Well, Aline was sick a lot, but I was right down the hall for her. When you weren't in Sacramento? I was home last night. Aline called out around 4 a.m. David? I need you. I tried to get her to eat soup and a sandwich, and I gave her a back rub. Oh, can't blame a fellow for trying to get back in bed. I was just taking care of her. And what happened this morning? I woke up around six. 
ate breakfast, did yard work, like usual. And around 9am, I woke Aline up. I drew her a bath. You soak while I make your breakfast. How's that sound? Really nice, actually. I helped her in. She's got weak ankles and was still feeling sick, so I didn't want her to, to fall. Then you left your sickly wife alone to go out to the yard. I had work to do. I trimmed the artichoke plants. I gardened. And you built a fire. Tell me, Dave, what was in that fire? Cigarette butts, corn cobs, I think part of an old garden hose. I burn all kinds of trash. What does it matter? What about a pipe? A metal one? What are you implying, officer? I don't know. Everything from this morning feels like a dream. Seeing your dead wife was a dream. No. It was a nightmare. After the realtor came, I wanted to tell Aline that we had company. I ran back into the bathroom. And when I opened the door, I, I stepped in blood. And I saw Aline. Aline? Aline! Aline, wake up! Answer me. Wake up! So, Dave, what do you think happened to your wife? I don't know. Maybe someone broke in. And what? Beat her over the head? That wound is so deep, so bloody. He must have used something awful strong. Like a piece of pipe. Officer, what are you saying? Just spit it out! All right, Dave. I think you killed your wife. I didn't. It was- My boys are gonna scour this house until we find out how. And I'm gonna keep you in custody until I find out why. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with our second episode on Aline Lamson. We'll see how a mismanaged crime scene led to a botched investigation. We'll witness a CSI pioneer fight for David's innocence alongside a group of Stanford elites. And we'll learn why it took three trials to assess David Lamson's guilt. For more information on Aline Lampson, amongst the many sources we used, we found California's Lampson Murder Mystery by Tom Zaniello and American Sherlock by Kate Winkler Dawson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman, 
edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Brian Golub. It stars Charlie Wess, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Sammy Amounts, Zelda Diana Black, and Joe Hernandez. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>